We know the 19th century writer, reporter, and poet Stephen Crane for his Red Badge of Courage and other novels. Crane accepted a reporting assignment in 1894 that took him on a tour of a coal mine in West Scranton. We know from Dr. Bill Conlog that Crane recalls his constant awareness of the roof, which he says he refuses to touch because it expresses the unmeasured deadly tons above. The tons, however, have been measured. Mining engineers know their dimensions and distances from the surface. In fact, Crane's guide is likely a member of a survey crew. The man knows all the tangled passages that make up the extraordinary black puzzle of the mine. And unlike the writer, he has not lost all ideas of time, direction, distance, including where in this city of endless night he is in relation to surface sites. When they stop at the face, the guide tells the miner at work there that he cannot measure the place because he does not have his tape. In response, the miner fears that without updated measurements, the mine may kill him. That from the study Undermined in Coal Country by Bill Conlog, a professor of English from Marywood University in Scranton. Conlog asks us to follow him in a comparison he'd like us to consider. Maps and novels, for example, he brings them together, suggesting guides to navigating spaces. Maps, like literary pieces, help us to know a place. But when most people study them, maps and literary texts, they usually see only surfaces. Few read either to know what lies beneath them. As acts of persuasion, mind maps, for example, deepen one's sense of time and space in place. Artful metaphors that seek to persuade readers of their accuracy, mind maps bear marks typical of written texts, words, punctuation, and symbols. Would reading the hidden worlds they represent alter people's perceptions of where they are? I think so, says Dr. Bill Conlog. Dr. Conlog's study makes the case that mind maps help us read what's below the seemingly solid surfaces of our lives. In his case, the mines running directly below his neighborhood, his own home, in fact, in Scranton. But Dr. Conlog is a professor of literature, and he believes that stories can do just that. They are a way of knowing who we are, where we are, and what we are doing, offering us light and heat and smoothing our journey. Michael Senna is a maker of maps. He's very concerned with smoothing our journey in life, literally, as he designs safer ways for us to travel in vehicles wherever we live. He's concerned at the same time with helping us find our way with his navigational projects and designs and innovations. At the same time, Michael Senna is a writer and he's concerned with exploring our journey in life in helping us find our way in perhaps metaphorical ways. And for Senna, the way to do those things is to dig deeper, to look into the darkness of the places below and see who and what emerges and how that has shaped us and our way of living today and might help us as we ask questions about our future. In his recent novel, The Coal Men, set here in anthracite country, there has been an accident, a squeeze, and six men are trapped below. As the story plays out, they wrestle with the past and the present 
in the face of an unknown future. Michael Sennett is a native of Scranton who lives and works in Sweden. He is an internationally recognized expert in telematics, digital map databases, location-based services, and navigation. In part one of our conversation with Michael Senna, we learned about his family and his early life in Scranton, and we pick up now where we left off in learning how he thinks about the characters he has created in The Coal Men. There's too little told about regular people. I mean, simple people who have very interesting lives and very complex lives, and they do things that you wouldn't really know why they've done them, but there's a reason for it. So each one of these characters, I've tried to see in each one of these characters why they ended up in the mine and then how they saw themselves after the experience that they've, that they've gone through during this day of being trapped in the mine. And that was an important concept you had as a novelist, as a fiction writer. How am I going to get these people together to interact in a way where they can have a chance to have that reflective experience and where readers can get to know them and learn about the larger picture? The idea, I mean, I guess the basic idea, and it, it, took, me, it took me a long time to figure it out. With all of my books, what I've, or, or even just an article, for me, the most important part is writing the first sentence. And the other is, is having a clear idea of not, not necessarily where it's going to go, because the book takes many directions. An article can take many directions as you're, as you're writing it and developing it. But the key in the, the Coleman was that Nico would be unconscious, and that by being unconscious, he was able to reflect on, on himself, on his life, and also reflect for others, thinking about what it is, how that they got there without having to engage in a conversation, but being able to, to be there but not being part of it in, in the sense that they, they knew he could hear them because he was still alive. And they kept saying this you know, during, the, during the course of the book. You know, he can hear what we're saying, but, they, but after a while they just continued to have their conversation and he would reflect on that. And for me, that was, the, that was the most important thing, because each one of these characters were developing their life story during this period of time that they were trapped. And the life story would eventually turn out for them to be something that would change after they came out of the mine. I'm ruining the story for everybody, but anyway, that was the key. And then to be able to, to put the characters, and that was the, other, the third part of it, was to define the characters. They're different ages, they have different ideas, they got there in different ways, but they all had this one thing in common. They were there. They were all coal miners. And were they going to continue to be coal miners? Why did they become coal miners? And then what, what happens next? And there's an intriguing discussion about work and the question of what next and the women are involved, and the women say, well, they could be waitresses, they could be nurses, they could be librarians. So you are helping us understand in a personal way about the whole burden that you went through when you were saying that the architecture firms were closing, that you want to be an architect, but you want to put food on the table. The essential survival things and the decisions that get made because of that. Yeah, the, the other thing that I wanted to do was to, was to tell the, the story 
two stories in parallel, and that's why each each one of the chapters ends with the wife or the girlfriend, and they're they're coming they're coming to the wash shanty to to be there when when their their husband or their their boyfriend comes out alive or or dead, but they're they're coming to this. To this place and telling their part of the story and listening to you know how they're seeing what's happening and reflecting on their relationship to their husband and there were three three cases of girlfriends with with their um, respective husbands and three wives with their existing husbands and they're very different i mean the story the girl who's who's going to marry the Waj, the the Polish Jewish convert to Catholicism. You know, she's she's angry, and her voice is they never should have been there. They, the the mines are unsafe. Why are we putting them there? Why are we allowing people to go into the mines? So many people are dying, and and I remember this as well. My my friend Gino, my friend, my my third cousin Gino Mori, who's who introduced us. Gino's father was a was a coal miner. So Gino was, he wasn't a grandfather, he was a father. You know, he, his father came home every night working, working in the mines. When he read the book, he said, you know, you're, you're too light on the, on them. You know, you should be pushing more about how bad it was. And yeah, but at the same time, as some of the women said, look, this is, this is putting food on the table. This is, this is the way that we're able to live. Without this job, we don't have a place to live. And, and this also gets to the politics of today, I mean, there's so many people who who are saying, well, "I know what's what's the problem that these people have with with uh, products being produced in in other countries?" And you know, it's more efficient to build everything in China. We'll we'll figure out a way of getting jobs here. It turns out in places like Scranton and, and Hazleton and and Jim Thorpe, there still are a lot of people who don't have a job because. Things like the mines closed down and the businesses have, have moved. So that's that's also part of the book. A job is something that's important, not just for yourself, but for a community and, and everyone around you. And if you lose your job, it's not just you that, that's being affected. It's a lot more people who have to figure out how to, you know, how to do what they were doing before the money stopped coming in. You set the story in 1965, right? Yes. And you give us a sense of the time and the racial tensions. We have a couple who are seeing each other and eyebrows are raised. There are the ethnic tensions, the religious, as you said, about Wudge and his conversion and those sorts of things. But you're very sensitive to the sociological dimension of that time. Yeah. 1960, when I went to college... The person who who took took me, who took care of me when I went down there, Cosmo was was already graduated. You know, he's, he's, he's out. So it was a sophomore who played football, who was also studying architecture, and he was black. And I tell people, you know, he, he was my mentor for the next two years. He was one of the few. I think there were three people, three black students, when I came to Princeton. And I went to West Grandin High School. We didn't have any black kids in our school. Most of the, of, at that time, the African Americans, they lived in a, in a certain section of town. Their families had lived there forever. But I met black kids through sports, but not, not socially. And it was when I went to Princeton that I began to see a completely different view that there was prejudice. I never saw this when, when I was growing up in Scranton. 
just never occurred to me, and I didn't see it. I'm sure that it, the black kids did. Of course they did. But the best basketball player, his name is Rhett Jenkins. He went to Central, and he was a great student, and I, he, I'm sure he, he did very well. He went to college, and we just didn't have that kind of racial tension at all when I was growing up. But I saw it at Princeton, and I began to see it. And then, of course, two years later, 1967, everything changed. When I was in the first year, freshman and sophomore year, I'd go to visit my cousin who went to Columbia. He was the same age. He graduated from Dunmore at the same, uh, same year. I went to visit him, and we would go everywhere. I didn't go up to Harlem with them, but they used to go up to 125th Street to the Apollo Theater. But after 1967, all of that changed. So what I, what I was reflecting on and what I was... You know, 1965 was conscious. It was a year, two years after... John F. Kennedy was was assassinated, but it was before the riots. It was before Martin Luther King. It was it was it was this intermediate time. But there still was the idea of, of dating and marrying an African American, a black person at that time was was it was almost as, as bad as when my mother and father were getting married and people said to them, This is a mixed marriage because my mother's parents were from Umbria and my father's parents were from Campania. But you have a sensitivity to that that isn't forced. It doesn't feel like you are giving an object lesson. Let me ask you about timing. I said 1965. You set the story in and around Thanksgiving, and November 22 is Wodge's adopted birthday, and that sort of thing. That's a lovely touch. Is there a symbolism? Did you choose Thanksgiving time for larger poetic purposes? Yes, not, I mean, not consciously. I mean, this is this wasn't some some grand scheme that I had. But growing up in a Italian American family, both on both sides, and being so close to to both, and having different traditions in both of these, growing up with the church, I mentioned that my grandfather was one of the one of the first families in the in St. Lucy's Church, and St. Lucy's Church was. I think still is called the Mother Church of the Italian-American community in, in that whole region. The church was just up, the, just up the hill, up Scranton Street. It's not there anymore, but it was there. You know, we walked up the street to church, and we went, we went to all kinds of activities there during the week. It was a focus, focal point. I did not go to Mother Cabrini School. My father was determined that, I was, that we were going to go to public schools, you know, after the war, we weren't Italian Americans. We were Americans. I've written another book on that. <laughs> it's, it's a book about being an Italian American between the wars, and that it's more of a story of of my my father and the and his experience in Brooklyn and Scranton. But we were we were Americans, but the traditions, the Italian traditions, were still very strong. The Catholic holidays were still very strong. But because of the experience of my father, not just in the war, but before the war and after the war, we were Americans. And the two most important holidays for us were Fourth of July and Thanksgiving. The Fourth of July, my father walked in the, walked in the parade with, with the uh, American Legion. And Thanksgiving, we went to the two football games in the stadium when West Granton played Dunmore in the afternoon. And... Scranton and Tech in the morning. Went to both of those football games. And in between, in between we had Thanksgiving dinner. And Thanksgiving, still, to me, we, we still celebrate Thanksgiving here, just the two of us. And as we know, you are in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. 
and then have a turkey. We started out with a turkey and it gradually got to a to a chicken because turkeys are you know turkey for two is is kind of Thanksgiving was very very important and the assassination of President Kennedy just before Thanksgiving in my junior year was still it's it's it's, it's embedded in my my mind and in my my soul. So Thanksgiving is a very important, and it always has been a very important time. And I felt that that would be another part of the story, you know, being able to celebrate, being able to come together, and being able to do things with the families at Thanksgiving. So there was a sense of, of they wanted to get out of there before the holiday, before Thanksgiving, because they had all of these things that they were going to do, and they really depended on doing and of course, the story of, of of the couple who would be hopefully united in the family, the Greek family, at Thanksgiving was was also part of that. A toast the Retsina. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is the status of the book now? Is it in any way going to be available for people to read? How are you handling that? Well, I I have had one book published. It was it was not my first, but the second, and it, it was a it's a trade book. It's uh, it's called Beating Traffic. The other books that I've written, I said this was the only the only fiction book, but there was one other book that was kind of a combination of uh, fiction, and that that book is is on Smashwords, which really isn't published. So I would like to have this book published, but I haven't I haven't done anything about either finding a publishing agent or sending it to someone to uh, to have a read. I do, I would like to have it published because I think it's worth. I feel it's a book that's worth reading, and uh, I'd like to have it read. And getting it published is, is the way to do it. Tell us how we can learn more. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very, very simple. It's, my website is all one word, michaellsena.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-S-E-N-A.com. And I love the library part. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is another plug for Scranton and also for libraries. We had a library across from our, from St. Lucie's Church where I used to go. It was a little little white house. And I wrote an essay. I can't remember how old I was, but I must have been less younger than 12 years old. And it was for the Daughters of the American Revolution. And the essay was on Benjamin Franklin. And I had to recite the essay from memory. And for that, I got a medal, which I, I still prize to this day, from the Daughters of the American Revolution. But I used to spend a lot of time at that at that library, and that's where the that's where this little competition was. But when I began going to high school, just about once a week, I was at the library, the downtown library, Albright, Albright which which is still one of my absolutely favorite buildings in the, this entire world. So when you go to my site, you'll see my favorite libraries, and there are pictures there of Albright Library, as well as some of the other libraries that I've had. Unfortunately, I never took a picture of, this, of the one that was across from St. Lucie's, and that's long gone. But yes, libraries are a very important part of my life, and, and Albright was, was still a bright place. I was there the last time, every time I'm in Scranton, I, I take, make a visit to the Albright Library. Michael Lawrence Senna, a native of Scranton who lives and works in Sweden, he is an internationally recognized expert in telematics, digital map databases, location-based services, and navigation, and he is a writer. 
He holds undergraduate and graduate degrees in architecture and urban planning. And during a four-year period from 1993 through 1996, he worked for AB Volvo in Gothenburg, Sweden, with a responsibility for navigation, traffic information, and fleet management data activities. He has a newsletter which is intriguing if you're following stories about electric vehicles and self-driving vehicles. You can find everything you need to know about Michael Senna online at his website, michaellsenna.com. S-E-N-A, michaellsenna.com. Speaking with us today about the coal men, today was the second part of a two-part series, and you can find the first part on the WVIA website under Art Scene. It's wvia.org, wvia.org. And we'll be posting these parts also on a special page for Anthracite Heritage Mining Month that WVIA is marking in conjunction with the Anthracite Heritage Foundation and many educational and historical organizations in the region. The month of January 2022 has been proclaimed Anthracite Heritage Mining Month by this consortium. And you can find many features on Anthracite Coal, the history of the region, and the WVIA original documentary on the Knox Mine disaster, the video documentary, by checking the website at wvia.org slash mining, wvia.org slash mining. Our guest today, Michael Senna, a native of Scranton who visits the Albright Memorial Library every time he is in town. He lives and works in Sweden. For more information on the web, michaellsenna.com, S-E-N-A, michaellsenna.com.